its beaches and inlets to its forests and heathlands, Suffolk is a wonderful place to visit, but a great place in which to live. And yet what makes Suffolk so fantastic isn't just its natural scenery and wonderful open skies, it's the people who inhabit this wonderful county. Suffolk is full of extraordinary people, of amazing businesses and staggeringly helpful community groups. So the reason why we've put this podcast together, the reason why we have the Suffolk Money podcast is that we have found that there are only three things we can do with money. We can spend it, we can save it, or we can give it away. So we speak with community groups and charities to which we can give. We talk with independent financial advisors and money experts about our savings. And we talk with entrepreneurs and business leaders about places in which we can spend our money. This is a series of podcasts supported by Kingsfleet Wealth Independent Financial Advisors. If you have an issue with your car, you'll go and talk to a mechanic. If you have an issue with your heating, you'll bring in a heating engineer. However, what if you don't have anybody who you are really close to, who you can talk with about a family issue? Maybe it's difficulties with your children. Maybe it's issues that they are having with their schooling. Potentially, it's something very significant, like domestic abuse. We were able to talk with Tara, who's the chief executive of Homestart in Suffolk, and ask her about their work, about how they bring in volunteers to support families with all forms of needs in all locations around the county of Suffolk. Tara is able to tell us a lot more about this and other aspects of their work, which I'm sure you will find extremely interesting. First of all, can I just say, yes, it is an amazing charity. Um, and yes, I do run it, but I'm, I'm very lucky that I get to take some of the credit um, for an amazing job done by our amazing team. And we've got some just brilliant volunteers that, that do a lot of that work. So yes, um, we work in, in Suffolk, um, the county we all know. Um, we're a county-wide charity. Um, we support families. Um, families that need support for for many reasons. So it, could, it doesn't have to be complex. It could just be, you know, somebody that is struggling, um, you know, new children in the family, new relationships or, or breakdown of relationships. Um, it could be somebody new to the county. So lots and lots of different things, um, as well as those kind of more complex needs, child protection, child in need um, and domestic abuse. So what we do ultimately is we provide friendship and friendship is just the most important thing. Um, it, it's giving somebody a connection that they may otherwise not had. Um, but it's not just friendship. It's not just somebody that rocks up with a bottle of wine because unfortunately, you know, our volunteers don't do that necessarily. Um, but what it does is it gives a structured friendship, a professional friend. So when we have a referral and our referrals generally come from um, statutory services, but people can self-refer into the service as well. Um, when we get that referral, we'll assess it, have a look and, and see what the needs that somebody has 
um, see if it's something that we we feel we can support that person with or that family with. And then one of our paid members of staff um, will go out to them. They'll get to know a bit more, tell them a bit about the service and then, you know, find out what they want in terms of having somebody support them because all of our support is offered by volunteers so we think that actually the matching between the volunteer and the family is is just key to the success of that service so it's a bit mm. like a dating service I think I've described mm. it like that a few times mm. before but probably more successful than some of our, our more well-known dating services um but it's about you know actually is this person is this volunteer going to get on with this family um, are they going to have the right skills to support this family um, it can be those practical things you know they're not going to have to travel maybe two hours to get to that person, but equally they're not going to live on their doorstep because, you know, actually that's, that's not wanted by people. Um, so we think about that. And then if we got a volunteer and, you know, we've got 270 something volunteers. So mm. I would hope that we would have, you know, somebody that can support that family. Um, then we will be matching those, those people, those, that family and that volunteer introducing them and then the role of our team is to really culture that relationship um, and over a period of time they get to know each other they work on a number of outcomes so they're always working towards an eventual outcome and, and of course you know we're human so those outcomes are not set in stone they're not necessarily going to happen in the way we expect so we're very flexible they change um, but we're always just checking are we the best placed person to support you um, you know is that support going in the way that, in a way that you feel comfortable and in control of um, so that you know when actually we get to that outcome it's an outcome that a family feels absolutely comfortable with they feel that they've you know, made that outcome, they've controlled that outcome, because I think that's absolutely key to services working well for somebody. Actually, you need to control your own service, you need to control what is being offered to you, and, you know, feel in, in control and in charge of that. Mm. Um, so we're there, you know, to make sure that relationship works well, to support volunteers, because obviously, not everything goes well all of the time, there mm. are challenges, um, there are concerns and we need to obviously make sure that our families and, and their children and anybody around them are safe um, and looked after. So, you know, staff are there to make sure that happens as well. Um, and obviously we're there to support the volunteers with their own learning um, and their own development because they're volunteers and they have their own lives, um, which change, obviously. Mm. So we're there to, you know, support the volunteers through their good times and their bad times as well. So it's it's a big, happy family. I know it's a bit bit hippie-ish but it, it oh, is it's oh sure yeah so the bit that's slightly intriguing me in there is how do you then pair up a volunteer with the individual you know is there somebody who's part of all of that decision making who says oh yeah, that person will go really well with with them or they're a good listener or they're an expert in that particular issue how do you how do you go about doing that because that to me yeah. feels like the key to the success of the whole arrangement it is. It is absolutely key. Um, I think what worries me is I can't actually describe it to you. Um, <laughs> so it's more it, art than science. Is it is. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Right. Um, and it works, you know, 9.7 times out of 10, it works. So it, it's working well. I think, you know, what we, we consider to be really important is that time when we have a new volunteer, for example, come into the organisation, we spend a lot of time preparing them and we call it preparing, not training, because actually, you know, as people, as people that have lives, we expect that anyone that's come through our recruitment procedure, which is quite intense, 
will actually have the skills and the personality and something about them that actually they don't need lots of training they just need a little bit of a boost so a bit of preparation to get them to the point where they can support somebody but that process you know from somebody contacting us through to them being able to support family you're looking at around 55 to 60 hours now mm. you know if, if you think about if you sat with somebody for 55 to 60 hours you would think you would know them quite well mm. um, and so our staff spend that time with them and um, getting to know them there is um, a lot of one-to-one time a lot of group time we do a lot of activities which tease out maybe some of the challenges that people would find um, and some of the personal elements to it that they might find quite difficult a lot of this is about choice so volunteers have absolute choice in, in what they're doing so if somebody says to us um, you know I really like babies um, could you try and, and find me a family with a baby we will do our best to find a family with a baby um, and some people prefer working with teenagers I've got a teenager I'm not sure why anyone prefers that um, <laughs> but um, you know it's it can be about choice and if, if we present somebody with a, with a scenario well look we have this family that we think that you'd be really wonderful with um, and actually the volunteer turns around and says no um, we don't spend you know half an hour moaning about them in the office we just say okay that's absolutely fine there's always going to be somebody else so we totally respect their decision um, and we always and, give them that and is that sometimes after a bit of a getting to know you session so there can be because as much as things can look good on paper is that sometimes relationships just don't gel um yeah i mean occasionally it does happen what we would really push for is that at the point that we introduce a family and a volunteer that it's pretty much cemented now obviously there are going to be you know occasions where it doesn't work and we will try and resolve those as quickly as possible um but we've got to be realistic that the majority of families that that come to us for a service whether they contact us themselves or, or through you know a different body They've probably been at some point let down by a service. They've possibly struggled to access our service. So, you know, mentally may not feel in a good place to do that. I think if any of us ask for help, actually, for many people, asking for help doesn't come naturally. So mm -hmm. it knocks a little bit of our confidence. So we have to be realistic that if somebody has taken all that time um, to get to that place, um, then by the time they come to us, if we were then to introduce somebody after they've had those knocks and those letdowns and all of those things, and we said, actually, this person's coming to visit you, doesn't want to come and see you, um, we wouldn't ever say it quite like that. Mm. Actually, what is that going to do to somebody? What is that going to do to their engagement? So we want to get it right. It's really crucial that we do get that right. So, I mean, yesterday I spent, um, or yesterday and the day before, I've been, we've been recruiting new members of staff um, to work on our family support team. And actually, you know, we were we were having a discussion about it yesterday evening um, with the people that were recruiting and actually saying, you know, you can have every qualification under the sun. You can have done every course. But if you haven't got the right personality, you've not got the right personality. Mm. Um, you've got to, you know, absolutely get to be able to get to know somebody and get the best and the worst from them. You know, it, it's very easy getting the best out of people. Yeah, people that are volunteers, they come to do their best. So they're going to show you their best side. But actually, when we're, we're preparing them, we need to see their worst side. Mm. We need to see the things that are going to challenge them, the things that if they were, you know, that might push their buttons, um, that if they were faced in a situation with a family and this or that happened or was said, how are they going to react to that? You know, actually, we need to know that they are emotionally resilient enough. And if they're not, that's not a problem. It's not that we, we find these things out about them and say, 
see you later we don't want you it's about knowing it so that we can work with it so that we get that matching right so that that strikes me as amazing that you have 270 people who have gone through that degree of stringency <laughs> it, it sounds awful but it is much nicer but, no, but, it, but it needs to be that doesn't it because mm. as you say they could be put in, could be going into an environment where someone is really very much towards the end of their tether and, yeah. and they will need a not just a listening ear mm. but someone who can work their way through all those um issues so you've got to have the right people going in so yeah i'm, I'm, I'm not pushing back on the, on how tight you are on that i think it's actually fantastic yeah. that you are um but it's a it's a high hurdle for people to mm -hmm. get through it is but i think there's a reality that there's a spectrum of needs yeah so you know it, it's not that to we, we support around 700 you know between 600 and 700 families a year 700 people haven't got complex needs 700 families haven't got complex needs a percentage of those families have complex needs and there are some volunteers that have the skills and experience and you know strength to be able to support those complex needs cases or those complex needs families and there are some volunteers that sit more comfortably around early intervention and that that lower level support now every volunteer to me is as important because they mm. all do an amazing job but they are different Mm. say you know 270 people you're not going to have somebody that is the same as somebody else so sure that's great to have that that difference which gives you that ideal solution of different shaped jigsaws fitting in you know pieces fitting in the jigsaw so yeah that's that's great and how do you find those volunteers um it's in every way possible i think <laughs> um, <laughs> and certainly it's changed you know enormously in the last 18 months so if i think pre-pandemic um our staff were out in the community so they would attend lots of community um groups or, or activities events um you know actually the amount of people that you can pick up from a poster in a supermarket um you know can be be quite quite a decent amount um but actually you know whilst and social media of course before the pandemic was was a big um source of, of new volunteers now you know social media is absolutely key absolutely key um but you know it's we do find it really interesting um we we're very good at looking at the analytics around when people you know contact us when they're looking at that information i also find it quite interesting that a peak volunteering time is 11 37 i think on a, on a wednesday evening i don't know what happens what? at that time <laughs> um but that's when you tend to get the most hits around volunteering right, okay. on on social media and the website very very that's... odd um, and, you know, and of course, you know, Sunday evening, because I think, you know, Sunday evening is, is the end of a week. And when you're mm. reflecting on how your week may have been um, mm. and, and then looking at, at social media at that point. Um, but I think, you know, we need to be very aware that and we are that different parts of the county respond differently to different things. Mm. Um, you know, what we find is in our, in our town centres and our urban areas, social media is key. For, for recruiting volunteers, whereas in our more rural areas and certainly the peripheries of the county, there seems to be a lot less engagement with social media. They're more likely to engage, for example, in a parish magazine, um, in from from direct from a school or something in a local shop. So, yeah, yeah. We, we it's very flexible. We've got um, a couple of people within the team that concentrate a lot on on volunteer recruitment um, because it's it's so key to mm. the service. Um, I mean, what, what we've seen over the last year is an absolute boost in volunteering. So, so many voluntary sector organisations have seen that, people furloughed. Um, they wanted to support their communities because, you know, everyone could see 
see the need out there. Um, and I think, you know, when you're sitting at home and reflecting, what can I do? Then volunteering becomes an, an easy answer. So we saw an absolute boost in, in volunteering. And um, we saw, for example, more male volunteers, which is an area we particularly struggle with. Um, we saw an increase in younger volunteers with students being home from university um, and you know being furloughed and those, those people being furloughed or not even making it into their first job after university. Mm. Um, but I think the challenge now is to retain those volunteers as people go back to work, as furlough you know, finishes. Um, and summer has been a challenging time this year for volunteering because I think understandably, people have got the opportunity for the first time in a long time to go out, see their friends, see their family, stay out late um, and not have to be home before a certain time and all of those things. And actually the added pressure of then, do I go and see a family at six, seven o'clock in the evening after I've done all those things? Many mm. people are not wanting to in the same way. Um, but equally, there's a lot of extra pressure on people right now. So obviously we need to keep keep families safe in the same way as we keep the general population safe so we're asking people to do lateral flow tests um we're asking people to to still wear masks in in inside spaces um and if you've been at work all day and you've sat with a mask or or something face covering um and you've already taken a lateral flow test for example and and you know actually it's a bit of almost covid ppe exhaustion um i think that volunteers are facing so we have to be quite realistic that some people right now that are really struggling to do that um, and of course, families, you know, are volunteers that have got their own children. We know that children have really struggled over the last mm. 18 months as they've gone back into the school setting, anxieties have set in and all of those things. And I think lots of parents that we have as volunteers are wanting to support their children, give them a really positive, fun summer holiday. So they've stepped down from volunteering for a period of time and then will restart in, in September. So it, it's definitely been a, a challenging time for volunteers. Mm. Um, what has been really positive is that, you know, we've done 18 months of, of online virtual training um, and we've managed to do that brilliantly um, to, to get some great people. We've had um, around 80 new volunteers, which is, you know, epic number. Um, but now people are wanting face to face and, and we, we totally recognise that. So I've had the, the pleasure of actually going in and attending one of our more recent face to face sessions. And it, it was great um, because people were being honest about their nervousness and it's not now just nervousness about volunteering it's nervousness about you know health risks and pandemic and all of those things but people are able to to start talking to others and it's almost like relearning your communication skills um because I don't know if, if you've been in that situation when you've gone out to see friends and, and you've spent a couple of hours talking and you just feel like you could sleep for an entire week afterwards yeah. Yeah, um, it's just so exhausting, <laughs> get, you know, going back to how things were. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as well as that, you know, not everybody's in the same place as we might be as individuals. You know, people are on this spectrum of mm -hmm. being comfortable with close contact and others who, for their own reason, quite understandably, completely the opposite. And then there's those in between um, who said, yeah, I'm fine having contact as long as I don't, as long as I don't have to sit with you know, a meter or <laughs> yeah, something. So, you know, it's, it must be difficult trying to adjust to each of those circumstances as well. 
It is. And, you know, for our staff, they're having to do extra time risk assessing each case because they have to consider all, all of the elements um, of, of the pandemic. Um, we are also we've still got a combination of telephone support and home visiting support, which is great, because obviously if, if you're not comfortable, and we've got many families that are not comfortable. They're in the, you know, the challenging position of having someone coming into their home. So mm. actually, you know, many people are not comfortable with that. And, and whilst we can look at other options in public space and so on, it's not quite the same. Um, so there is a combination of support and we have to think about that. And yes, of course, you know, our volunteers have been absolutely effective. There are those that are more nervous. There are those that are more confident. Um, we've worked really closely with some local organisations. We've had some brilliant support from um, Suffolk Mind um, who have done some emotional resilience, emotional um, needs support to our volunteers and our staff um, just so that they can reflect and understand their own needs about getting back into the workplace as such mm. um, and have that support and really just know that they can, you know, acknowledge their own needs. Cause I think some people are quite nervous about doing that. It's always when we have group sessions, everybody mm. is a little bit nervous to say, actually, I'm, I'm a bit worried about going out. But once one person has said something, then, you know, everyone feels a bit more confident to say, yeah, yeah, me as well. So I think there's a bit of honesty around it and we, we just have to be realistic and do what yeah. we can do. Yeah, so we've spent quite a bit of time just thinking there about the volunteers there, um, you know, the challenges that you put them through quite rightly to see whether they're what they're able to cope with. Let's, let's talk through about who they're visiting and how those people have come into contact with you. How, how does that come about? You talked about referrals. What could those referrals be about? Who are they from? Uh, it'd be really interesting just to uh, investigate that a little bit. Cool. So, so I'll start with the who they're from generally, because that's slightly easier. Um, so we have a, a mixed um, well, referral route. So we have referrals from social workers, the early help team from schools. We have referrals from health visitors, midwives, um, nurseries. Oh, I'm not sure who we don't have referrals from, really. Um, and of course, families can self-refer themselves. Um, so it, it's very mixed. Different parts of the county, um, the referrals are higher for different groups. Um, at the moment, education, unsurprisingly, is um, sending in a lot of referrals. You know, they've obviously seen children that have been quite traumatised and challenged, um, families that have been financially affected, and that's had an often effect on, on the circumstances. Um, the types of need. Now, that's really interesting because in non-pandemic times, I could probably give you a percentage breakdown and say, look, Colin, you know, 70% of the referrals are going to relate to mental health in some way um, of the parents. Um, you know, 20% of those referrals are going to, to be about physical needs, 10% um, to be about parenting needs. And, and you can just throw that out the window. Um, it doesn't happen. There is no, there is no percentage anymore. It, it isn't like that. What we saw during the, the first year of the pandemic was um, absolute referrals for children's needs. Parents just almost said to themselves, I'm not important here. Um, I will just manage and self-manage myself or not, as the case may be. I need to support my child. So almost every referral that came in were about children's needs. So for us, and we monitor, we have a brilliant monitoring system so we can track what the referral needs are. And all of a sudden we were just seeing these kind of these bar charts that were just kind of going like this. Um, and, you know, we almost have, um, it's a bit like, a, I think if you think about a, an ordering system, a restaurant ordering system, and there's always gonna be the three or four dishes on the menu that hardly anyone ever orders. Well, suddenly those three or four dishes became the most popular for 12 months. Um, and they were around um, children's educational needs, 
which you know we we rarely saw a referral for mm. um that they were around um children's emotional needs um they were absolutely related to children and challenging relationships between parent and child um yeah. which we were seeing greatly um non-engagement from children so all those children's needs came up during the pandemic and and we were thinking, oh, you know, do we, how, what do we do? Do we, you know, concentrate, think this is, this is the future? Do we get our volunteers and our staff um, absolutely supported to support these needs? Do we train, start doing some changes in training? Um, do we start thinking about focusing our support around these things? Or do we think this is a blip? And we did a bit of both. Um, and then what we saw around October um, into November last year is we started to see a little trickle um, of parents' needs, and then they stopped again when we went in into the second mm, lockdown, mm. Um, and we went back to those children's needs. And as the children went back to school this year, um, what we almost saw overnight was stop of children's needs referrals into parents' needs referrals, because it was almost like we delivered our child to the gate and we collapsed. Mm. Yeah, um, and as a parent of young children, I can <laughs> absolutely get you know, holding that together and just getting to that point where it's like, I've, I've done, I've done mm. my time. Mm. Now I need to concentrate on me. And I think lots of people did that. And I think that's brilliant because I think if parents hadn't have done that, actually the trauma that they would have experienced long-term would be much greater. Mm. So now we're seeing lots of, um, lots of referrals around parents' mental health needs. We're seeing um, lots of referrals um, for financial challenges which is not surprising. I think we've had, um, we've seen many examples of families where the entire household income has been decimated. So it's not one person that has lost a job, it's two people that have lost a job. Certainly we've got lots of families where they work in hospitality um, or tourism-based industries um, and, and both parents have, have lost their income or, or had to change their income um, at a time where actually they've had to spend out more because they've had family at home and so on. Um, obviously, we've seen an increase in domestic abuse as people have been stuck inside with perpetrators. Um, but we didn't see that so much during the pandemic because obviously people couldn't necessarily make those referrals. Mm. But as things as, as people have started to go back to work, as there's, you know, people can start to be honest about the situations that they've they faced during the pandemic, we're seeing those referrals come in. Um, and, you know, just, just worries about the future. Lots of worries about the future that people have got. Um, worries about what happens next, about their health. We're seeing people that have not necessarily had their health care maintained um, during the last 18 months um, and they're very worried about their health or they've seen a deterioration in their health and we're supporting that and of course for children where we are seeing um, referrals are for parents extremely worried that they may have had a child that was undergoing some form of diagnosis before the pandemic or they were considering it and the waiting lists were long then and now there's no end in sight so they're extremely worried about how do they get the support to their child um, and they're not in a position to financially support it themselves. So I think it's an absolute mixed bag. Um, I would say that we don't ever get a referral for one thing. It would be very rare um, to get a referral for one singular reason. Um, we record, I think, against 39 outcome areas. Um, now, we don't ever expect that anyone's going to have 39, but actually in the last few weeks, we've seen people that have got 39 ticks in that box, those boxes. Um, and our, um, our head of family support is saying to me, you know, I'm not sure where to start, you know, and we're really good at, at picking out and she is very, very good at picking out, you know, the needs that we can work with. But when you're faced with 
so many needs it is very difficult to know where to start mm, i can imagine mm. so most of these uh, the root cause seems to be people being well so, so children not being in schools so having to learn from home and maybe friction there or friction because a family is all stuck in inside unable to socialize elsewhere or offload to anybody else so therefore everything's internalized those seem like the sort of core mm. issues that have then spun out into the mental health issues of abuse and, and so on um and, so, I, and I think the yeah. other challenge you've had with children is, you know, actually, it takes a long time to develop social skills. Mm. And if you're not in a position where you're socialising and you're face to face socialising on a day to day basis, you lose those skills. We've lost those skills. Um, you know, I, I you know, find it really exhausting, you know, talking to people for, for long periods of time that it isn't on the other side of the screen now. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the things that you do on a, on a Zoom call um, that you do, you can't do in real life, you know, yeah. um, you know, it, it's slightly rude to look at your phone, and, you know, when you're talking to somebody, which you might do on a Zoom call or check yes. your emails. Yes. Um, but I think for children, if they're not used to socialising, they tend to find what is available to them. So we've seen lots of children, certainly there's older, older children. So from kind of nine till, you know, 16 age ranges that tend to deviate through to, to gaming. Um, and it's not unusual for parents to find that they're gaming at two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning. Mm. Um, that is where they're in, in some way socialising, but they're just so shut off from the world you know they've yeah. got their, he their, their headphones on um they're they're gaming on you know parents feel that they, they're lost they've lost control almost they can't see what they're doing mm. um and well, they've got no concept mm, of time in that environment no. either so it's not that they're wanting to be difficult and be up mm -hmm. at three they yeah no they just absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. That, that, that's a real, again, teenager, mm. that's a real challenge. I get mm. that bit. Um, absolutely right. Now, that is tricky. Um, yeah, so that bit, oh, there was something you were just referring to there that I was just trying to, I was just kind of follow up on. So, yes, yeah, so that whole sort of getting back together. Um, what about very young children? So those that perhaps were born just either pre-pandemic yeah. or during the pandemic, uh, for parenting in that environment that must be really tough both um away from other children and families but mm. now that there is the possibility of creating social contact it, it has that um is that an issue or am i just yeah, it's a, no no it's a, it's a massive issue if you think that if a baby has been born during the pandemic they've seen very limited people and you know brain development in in very young babies is it comes from many experiences it comes from the sounds around the colors that they see the shapes that they recognize those constant voices so you know when when parents talk to their children or parents and carers talk to their children then it's very repetitive children pick that up they recognize that this is this is you know mum dad carer whoever it is grandparent um and and they're not having that they're having you know maybe one two voices maybe some siblings mm. um they're seeing the same environment and whilst ba very young babies obviously can't see absolutely everything in their environment they are picking up the same shapes and the same colors and they're not moving um and they're not having those experiences and also socialization, that early socialization of going to groups, going to, to parent or parent care or toddler groups and, and so on. Um, are, you know, they're not getting that. So they're not socializing with other, other children or babies around their age. Um, but also, I think, you know, for, for new parents, 
so isolating so isolating it's isolating and hard being a new parent anyway you're exhausted you're emotional you're tired you can you're always questioning am I doing the right thing um but having nobody to to kind of sit next to you and say yeah that's right or maybe if you tweak this or maybe you do this that that's really difficult that's a massive element if if you think back to when if if you've got children if you think back to when you had children for the first time and all the people that were around you giving you some good advice some bad advice and those that you would ignore but they were still there yeah. um and people have not had that experience that's so been really challenging if you think you know for for any baby the most a thousand and one the first a thousand and one days are crucial um in a child's development and we've taken away the elements that you know support that development in the first thousand and one days um many of those things and it's hard to get them back in so absolutely it's had a massive impact massive knock-on effect um on children and and i don't think that we'll necessarily be able to see um the impact of that until those children that have been born during the pandemic or just before the pandemic start going into the school environment it'll be interesting to see what separation anxieties are like um you know, we've seen it with our, with our, I know the children are not dogs, but, you know, with our lockdown puppies, mm, all the people that right. brought lockdown puppies. And then now those people are going back to work and those puppies are struggling um, with that separation anxiety because they've had, you know, those people around them for 18 months. And now it's a great shock. And, it, and it's not going to be unusual when our, the babies and, and, you know, born before and after and be, during the lockdown um, suddenly have all these influences what is going to be the sudden and impact because they haven't had that brain development to tell them that's okay um i was talking to somebody i think yesterday that said um they'd they'd experienced a baby who um had been born during lockdown and other than their parents um who they seen they hadn't seen anyone without a face mask um and so a, a gentleman had taken off his face mask and he had a beard and the baby was absolutely you know upset um, hysterical about the fact that this person had a beard because they've never seen a beard. Mm. Um, so you know, can you imagine? Imagine mm. that. Imagine uh, is... Just be totally alien to mm. to these babies and children. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. In in many ways, I remember you know, my father saying, "You can remember the first time he ate a banana. He was born at the beginning of the Second World War, and for, and just that experience was something that is still very much in his mind. And I just wonder mm. how many things will now be being burned into the minds of children who are experiencing something for the mm -hmm. first time, which for the last eighteen months or so they just haven't." Well, I've I've got nine year olds that if we we come go low on the toilet roll, the the hysteria in our household. <laughs> oh, goodness, <laughs> from the great yeah. toilet roll famine of twenty twenty. Well, yeah, goodness, <laughs> of all the things I thought about, that's not one that crossed my mind. But yeah, it's a, it, yeah, different things stimulate different minds, don't they? So yeah, that's. So what are the issues specifically with Suffolk? We've talked about maybe some of those needs that are going on, but we tend to think of Suffolk that everything's fine, and you know people come here on holiday, and we've got amazing beaches and we've got lovely forests and heathland and we've got new market and you know all these incredible historic sites lavenham and so on mm -hmm. this is just such a wonderful county what where are these things cropping up and how does it happen and what why should they and isn't everyone happy and wonderful and marvelous um yeah it is wonderful and marvelous there's a reason that banksy um <laughs> did, did some street <laughs> art in in suffolk um because it's not all wonderful and it's not all marvelous uh, let, let's separate it out the people of suffolk are wonderful and marvelous yeah that is we have the one of the best 
you know, communities, if I talk to colleagues in, in other counties, I know that, you know, we are so lucky to have such community minded people in this county um, that come up with the best solutions um, to supporting people within within their lives. Um, but Suffolk, yeah, it, it's one of those places, isn't it? You're right. Um, you go on holiday, you see the lovely sites of Southwold, Oldborough, Woodbridge, um, you know, Newmarket um, and so on. But but actually, it's got massive hidden pockets of need. Um, and I think that unless you're there, you don't see it. And I think that that's absolutely a challenge. I think that we've got certain areas in Suffolk that have got less life expectancy or poorer life expectancy than other areas in Suffolk, and that's wrong. Um, I think that in terms of education, we have certain areas um, where children will have, you know, a less likelihood to achieve good grades at GCSE, um, and that's wrong. Um, and I think what scares me the most um, about those pockets and those challenges is that there doesn't seem to be much end in sight. So I've worked in Suffolk for, for Home Start for, for 14, 15 years, um, and the areas 14, 15 years ago that were a challenge are the areas now that are a challenge. So that hasn't changed. Um, so that's really difficult. So, I mean, let's be honest, we're a rural county. OK, so transport is always going to be a challenge. So if you live in um, a village on in a rural area um, on the peripheries of the county, you are going to have poor transport links. You may have a very small village school if if you have one at all. Um, and you may not see other you know, human beings except your children in, in any week. Um, and that is difficult. You could be extremely, extremely isolated. And then the impact of having to buy food from local shops. You know, actually, the comparison, if we've got parents that are in areas where they have to buy nappies and those nappies are costing, you know, almost double what they would in a major supermarket. Mm. Um, and so, and, you know, and, you know, you can say, well, actually, why can't they get a supermarket delivery? Well, we're still in a situation that it might seem odd, but actually lots of families, one can't afford, you know, the £40 minimum cost or charge for a supermarket um, delivery because that's not how they work. Um they also may not have a credit or debit card because you've got to have credit to get a credit card and you've got to be in a financial position to get a debit card. Um, so they may not have those. So actually, it's not quite that simple. So there's a big difference, big difference. Um, and, you know, we also see that in certain areas, there's a great movement between areas. So, for example, in Ipswich, you're less likely to stay in one of those areas for a longer period of time. So you're less likely to build up your, your community links, your links with your neighbours. You're going to move around to more appropriate housing when it's available. Um, so your links are continually being broken, continually being broken. And then, of course, we've got seaside areas. Now, we know that some of our seaside areas are beautiful and lovely, um, but there are also hidden challenges between, behind those areas. You know, tourism is only there for so many months of the year. And, you know, when the tourists go home, that area still exists and it still has its challenges with less income um, and less people um, and all of those things. So that's quite difficult. So, yeah, mm -hmm. Suffolk is certainly a challenging place because it's not seen to be challenging. Mm. But of course, again, just go back to the needs that you deal with. They're not all related to income or, or household. They can be just situations where people from all backgrounds or, mm. where, or different locations that it, uh, and uh, have a need like, you yeah, know, something that you can work with so I, i'm not sort of saying it's all it's no no and it's not 
it's not, you know, we have people um, that we're currently supporting. We have a GP that we're currently supporting and his family. Um, we have, you know, people that where there are no concerns with finances. I think mm -hmm. what I like about working um, for a voluntary sector organisation is, is that, you know, degree um, and the difference of people that we support because they all have needs and it, it doesn't come down to, you know, did you tick a box to say that you were in a, in a challenging financial situation? It's certainly mm -hmm. not like that at all. So, you know, we can go to a house that is worth, you know, this much and we can go to a house that's worth this much in a day. And it, and it doesn't mean that one person needs something more than another. Mm. That's, that's great stuff. So, so um, thinking that through, you, we've obviously talked about volunteers, we've talked about the uh, people who require need and support, which has been fascinating, but how, how are you funded? How does the money work in all of this? So, I mean, it's a combination. We never want to be funded from one source because that means you're answerable to one source. Um, and we need the flexibility to be able to support people where we see gaps in, in service. So we're in a really good position um you know as a charity we've we always work on um having a, at least a year's money in the bank so that we can if anything happened we would have an appropriate withdrawal from families so we would never leave them in the lurch and i think that that's really key if you're a charity you must always do that um we're funded partly by Suffolk county council um, and actually Suffolk County Council, because I, I was telling you about, you know, some of the challenges in, in Suffolk as a county, actually, we're really lucky to have a really progressive local authority and health authority. Um, so whereas other, other local authorities and health authorities may not work with the voluntary sector, actually Suffolk um, and for health, it's Suffolk and North East Essex, they do. Um, and they re absolutely recognise that the voluntary sector can support people in a way that statutory services cannot. There is a place for both. Um, but there is absolute flexibility in the voluntary sector. Um, there's, there's very little stigma attached to, to having a volunteer. Um, so you may be able to, to reach some of those families that may not want to reach those traditional statutory services. So we're very lucky that we have um, a great amount of support from Suffolk County Council. So they fund about 45% of our service. Um, we have some health contracts um, which allow us to work around people's health needs um, specifically. In And we've got some of those contracts for well for the whole of the county, but in different different slots. And then it gets, you know, um, if I was trying to write it down, it, it's very messy diet. Program. Um, we have funding in different localities. So, for example, in Waveney, we've got funding from the National Lottery. Um, so, you know, as much as I shouldn't say this, keep buying your scratch cards because that's where um, the funding goes to good causes. Um, and and we, we have a great relationship with the National Lottery. In fact, during the pandemic, um, they were one of the, the most amazing funders and supporters. You know, they contacted us to say, you know, what has changed? What can we do? Is there something you're not going to be able to do because this has happened? What can we do to support you? So actually they gave us some additional finances because they recognised how much harder certain things um, might be. And, and they're absolutely brilliant in, in supporting those eventual outcomes. So we, we love the lottery. Um, and then we get funding, you know, from, from donors, um, which has been key during the pandemic. You know, we lost, as, as I think every voluntary sector organisation lost, a key amount of fundraising income. You know, there's only so much you can do online. Um, you know, you can't do, you can't raise the types of money you would raise in, in you know, real life um, as you would on a, on a Zoom, you know, event. It's not quite the same, although we did quite well. Um, so actually donors have been absolutely instrumental in maintaining service. I think that people really recognise that this was, you know, such a crucial time for people that they wouldn't necessarily see and just 
open their purses and their pockets. And we had um, certainly in the first nine months just more donations than I've ever seen um, before to pick up, which absolutely helped us mitigate against the loss of, of that fundraising income. And of course, businesses um, have been amazing. Businesses have been amazing, not just uh, um, money, because, you know, actually funding is crucial to to, you know, maintain and deliver a service. But actually, we don't always want just funding. Um, we need advice and we need support. And, and, you know, we're a charity, so we'll always try and do something on the cheap if we can. Um, yeah. So if, if a business says to us, actually, can I give you some legal support or can I give you some accountancy support? Or can I help you with the HR? We're, all, we're probably going to say yes. Um, so to offer those things that actually have very little cost to them, if they're a, you know, a law firm, um, actually have a, a massive impact on, on what we can do. So, yeah, it's mixed, absolutely mixed. Um, and, you know, just to be really clear, you know, we're, we're not a, an enormous charity, um, but we're not a small charity. So, but actually even donations, you know, of £20, £10, £5 are crucial, they're key. Um, and I think, you know, what people say to us is I, I feel a bit, you know, rubbish giving you, you know, a £30 donation um, when you're getting a, you know, £200,000 grant. And what we'll say to anybody is that £200,000 grant has to be spent in the way it needs to be spent. So we can't vary that. So if it's got to be spent on supporting 57 families in Ipswich it has to be spent on supporting 57 families in Ipswich and it will break it down how we do that so you'll need 30 volunteers you'll need this member of staff whereas that 30 pound donation is saying to me you can spend this money on the things that no one ever really cares about um, but are absolutely crucial so whether it's buying three mouse mices, mice <laughs> um, for, our, for our laptops. Computer equipment. Um, yeah, computer equipment. <laughs> um, you know, that no grant will ever fund, you know. Um, I was having a conversation with somebody yesterday, you know, there, we've got 18 members of staff um, and the, the laptop situation that comes up on an almost daily basis, someone's laptop is always broken. Someone's laptop's always not working. And we, we get you know decent amount of funding in support families but can I find the funding to to get a laptop no because it's that undesirable back office stuff that is never funded so actually you know you might have the best charity in the world um you know with the, the best income to support people but you'll always have a rubbish infrastructure because yeah. they're the things that are never funded so actually that 30 pound donation means a great deal more to me because it means that I can you can I could buy those those bits of equipment those things that people don't care about don't see um yeah. that are absolutely crucial to the service yeah yeah, absolutely. Well, that's amazing. Um, and, and as you say, maybe it's just those little small gifts that people think to themselves, actually, there's not a huge amount of benefit, mm. but actually those small gifts regularly yeah. add up to quite significant sums, don't they? They so, do, they do. So how did you get involved? That's the next question that I would like to, as we come towards the close, Tara, how did you get involved in, in this? Um, so, I mean, I always think it's really interesting because people say, Tara, what did you do before this? And I very <laughs> sheepishly say, not much more than school and college, um, <laughs> because I joined at such a young age. Um, but before this, um, I had, uh, I worked for an organisation that was um, a support to people with learning disabilities and mental health. I was a residential care home manager um, for that. Um, and it was for adults and, and I found it you know it, it was challenging it was really really challenging because actually working with adults with enduring mental health needs um, and learning disabilities 
is really difficult. And one of the things that you recognize when you're working with adults is that there is, whilst you can, you know, support them in the best way possible, actually all of those crucial things that people need in their lives, if they haven't got it in childhood, they're not going to have it in adulthood. So for me, it began, began to be really clear that, you know, working with children um, and families was going to be is essential. Um, and so when the job at Homestock came up, um, I looked at it and I thought, oh, I think I'm really, really underqualified for this, um, but I'm going to give it a go anyway. And, um, and I was really lucky I got the job. And I remember saying to, to the person that interviewed me, look, I might not have as much um, knowledge um, and experience as some of the other people, but I can guarantee you that within the year, I'll have more experience and knowledge than these other people. Um, and, I, and I like to think that, you know, I have got some of that now. I'm very lucky that I've got a brilliant team around me that let me flag it um, really well. <laughs> um, so, um, but yeah, I think that's, that's how I got into it. And I still absolutely hold those things key and true, you know, actually... The biggest difference that we can make to people's lives is in childhood um, and you know I would never want to work for an organization that told somebody how to do something and I think Homestart doesn't do that it works with what people have got um, and you know there are, there are the last thing I would want any volunteer to do is to think that they are a Mary Poppins almost to go in and, and you know open their bag and make everything perfect with what they've got um, what we want people to do is actually say, you know, what do you want, you know, from from the service and how can I help you to get it? Um, so they absolutely work in conjunction with the family, the family in control at all times and they own that service. And that's to absolutely key. That's absolutely key. So, Tara, what, what the pe can the people of Suffolk do for you right now? What are the needs that you're still looking to address for you as a charity? So first of all, can I say as a charity, usually the answer is money. Um, I'm not going to say money. <laughs> um, first and foremost, actually, that there is two things that I, I really, really need right now. More volunteers, um, because obviously, like we've said, volunteers have had a really challenging time over the last 18 months um, and there is a greater demand on them. So anybody that's interested in, in volunteering, you don't need to have a massive background experience in, in supporting people. If you think you've got the right personality, you think you can do this give us a call um but also trustees now trustees are volunteers um but they're there to support the governance and, and the structure of the organization and we've got a, an absolutely amazing set of trustees but we have got a couple of gaps on our board um we're looking very closely at the moment around our environmental sustainability um that's a big thing for us it's really important we spend you know a lot of time sending 270 volunteers out traveling around the county um we need to look at our environmental strategies so somebody that could maybe come onto our board and support us with that um and anybody that can help us with with kind of structure with management um anyone that feels that they've got a skill to support a board We'd love to hear from you because we may be just missing um, and not totally aware of what somebody can help us with. So, yeah, trustees, volunteers are, are key right now. So on the trustee bit, the question I would always ask, and I know yeah, similar scenarios is, you know, what's the commitment? What, what do people need to do to be a trustee? Uh, I mean, they need to literally give up their life and, and come and work <laughs> on our board. Um, no, not at all. Um, <laughs> uh, and let me start with this cake um, and end with. It's a good incentive. Yeah, it is. Um, it's a bit like any volunteering. You can choose to give as much as you want to give. Now, we would ask a minimum of 
of kind of two to three hours of support a month. Um, but it, it sometimes it, it's less than that. So we would have a board meeting every quarter um, and we would ask somebody to be, be there for that board meeting. Now, obviously, if you're on holiday or something, that, that's absolutely fine. Um, and then there are subcommittees. Um, but, you know, in the first first stages, when you're first coming into the organisation, obviously, it's good to spend a little bit more time getting to know the organisation if you don't need it. But, you know, we have a system in place for buddies. Um, so other trustees that can support those newer trustees as well. Um, but it's a, a mixed bag. You know, some of our trustees will give one to two hours a month. Um, other trustees will give five to six hours a month. Um, and that depends on their own lifestyle. And we're very flexible. You know, we're, we're a family sport organisation, so we're going to respect the fact that you've got a family and a life um, and have that conversation with you and, and look at that flexibility. And it's also just worth stressing that, as we said at the outset, this is Homestart in Suffolk and you it are is. and you you are a self-contained organisation. We are. We're an independent charity in our own right. Homestar is um, an affiliated model. Um, and I, I tend to describe it like KFC, but um we've got better stock and supply demands than they have at the moment there's no no problems uh, with transport and so on um but yeah it's an affiliated model so there are 250 home starts up and down the country um and it's like any franchise model um you tend to meet the needs of your local community um and i'm not saying that suffolk has got more needs than than other counties but what we have got is progressive funders um and really progressive people that recognize the difference um, the early intervention and family support make and so actually we're really lucky that in Suffolk Suffolk Homestar is is one of the biggest in, in the country I think we're about third largest um, which means that we're able to support whilst we're not able to support everybody um, because I think on, on paper there's some there's a, a scary amount of people that need support in Suffolk um, we are able to support and increasingly support more people. So 700 families a year. Um, and that has been, we're working at about an increase of about 25% in, in increase in support each year. I think it will be wow. a bit more this year. Um, but, you know, actually the support that we have in the county from businesses, from our funders, from our local authority, um, and from brilliant people that want to volunteer and become trustees and support the governance of the organisation mean that we have grown and been able to grow to support the needs of the county. Goodness me. Well, that's been great to just get a bit of an insight into the work that you do. And uh, thank you for giving us the time today. It's been brilliant. Thank you very much. So thank you for joining us on the Suffolk Money podcast supported by Kingsfleet Wealth. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this conversation with one of Suffolk's interesting fascinating people if there is a story that you've got for us please do get in touch by visiting our website which is www.suffolkmoney.co.uk we also have a facebook page that you can like and follow and you can access all our podcasts through all the normal providers but please do subscribe and rate this podcast so that you're able to then get the latest update whenever a new edition is provided. And thank you so much for listening.